Thanks for tuning in to this month's Cinematic Schematic. In order to keep this programming, we need your help. That's right, if you're listening, we need you. If you enjoy this ad-free programming of the Cinematic Schematic, please support the show by subscribing to the podcast and giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. We'd also like to keep talking movies with you on our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Enjoy the show! Welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we'll close out our March theme of the examination of the works of Steven Spielberg and our road to Ready Player One. First, Alexandra Bohannon and I will take a look back at some of the most iconic sounds of the Spielberg-directed film scores. Don't get me wrong, Williams is great, but... Like, in terms of, like, tiny nuances, it's, like, yeah. lots of brass, lots of strings. I mean, it still does it does a, does work, but I wanted to have some, like, variance. Later, we'll leave Spielberg behind to look at another world incorporated into the world of Ready Player One with a trip to Ridley Scott's spin on the dystopian future Blade Runner. Alexandra and I sit down at Tower Theater for a special interview with the legendary science fiction fantasy author and personal friend of Philip K. Dick, who also wrote the novel sequels to Blade Runner, K.W. Jeter. Myself and a couple other of of Phil's acquaintances uh, back then were some of the first people to see uh, the original Blade Runner before it was released. All of this is coming to you on the Cinematic Schematic next. Welcome to Soundtrack, the curated soundtrack and score analysis segment on the Cinematic Schematic, presented by thecinematropolis.com. We're back after a little break last month, but we are back with a resounding whip crack and some Nazi killing. My name is Alexander Bohannon, full-on film score geek and host of Soundtrack, but as always, I'm never alone. Joining me here today in the kitchen studio is editor-in-chief of the Cinematropolis. Sir, what's your name? Uh, the name is Masters, Caleb Masters. <laughs> this is a different kitchen studio. It looks a little, it's it's like similar to the old one, but slightly different. Sli- slightly different. You can maybe notice different acoustics, but regardless, uh, Caleb is going to be joining me in my house as my roommate. So we're going to be podcasting Woo! out of my house full time. Roommate. That's yes. Right. So uh, this month we're going to be tackling the behemoth director Steven Spielberg and his filmography, and as well as discussing the impact on his scores throughout film. So as a heads up, there might not be as much John Williams on this show as you may expect. What? 
I know. I thought Steven Spielberg only ever worked with one guy. Uh, he is the only, he has not had a John Williams score for three of his films. Bringing us into the show is the classic Raiders March from 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark, directed by Mr. Spielberg himself. So this is a fun fact I saw on Twitter today, specifically about Raiders, which kind of blew my mind because I'm like, how are they reading my notes? When Indiana Jones 5 is released, Raiders of the Lost Ark will be as old as Casablanca was when Raiders opened. Crazy. Mind blown. bomb effect. Steven Spielberg's been around for a long time, guys. Yeah. He has effectively shaped cinema. He he has effectively changed the way we watch movies, the types of movies that are are made. He has defined the defined and redefined the blockbuster. Absolutely. He's made biopics. I mean, this guy has done everything. A prolific career that basically kind of set the tone from film. From, you know, Close Encounters on, if not Jaws. I mean, even though Jaws was handed to him is kind of like, wasn't that the thing where it's like, hey, take this movie. It's yeah. not going to be good. Yeah, okay, yeah, exactly. It was great. one of those things he was like, oh, I, I guess I'm directing this movie now. And I, I, I've never worked on uh, the, the ocean before. And like there was a whole list of reasons he never should have made that movie. Yeah. But then he did. And it was amazing. And it's a classic. Yeah, absolutely. That score was obviously John Williams. This score, also John Williams. Just as a heads up on Williams' prolific career, so Raiders of the Lost Ark is sandwiched with, behind it is Empire Strikes Back, and after it is E.T. Woo. <laughs> Can you imagine? Talk about like a one, <laughs> two, three imagine? punch. I'm going to write classic score after classic score after classic score. They're yeah. all memorable. They're all catchy. They're all unique. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, oh, let me just do this thing really well for the rest of my life. Um, sadly, uh, so this score, Raiders, uh, nominated for an Oscar, did not win. Boo. Lost to another classic from 1981, which you will r- instantly know by just hearing these just very few notes. I mean, I know it's a classic, but Indiana Jones is still way better. Yeah, I mean, Vangelis's be uh, 1981 soundtrack for Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire is a good movie. Yeah. It's got a good score. It does. I mean, I had in a in a leadership class at UCO, we both like we had these groups where we had to do film projects, and the both of us, like two of different groups, did this as part of like our film project without even talking to each other it's like this this film also not steven spielberg but i mean it's a great it's a great sound chariots a great it, it chariots great of fire score. is a great score great stuff yeah so fine fine i guess it can beat indiana jones raiders of the lost ark yeah I, I mean i forgive it uh not only is raiders perhaps my favorite steven spielberg film i know it's blasphemous probably for some of you uh, i mean Indi- raiders of the lost ark uh so recently someone i think it was uh scott weinberg tweeted out millennials under 30 three favorite Spielberg films. And you know what? You know what? The, I did uh, Minority Report, Jurassic Park, and then Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, and those are the ones I would like the, the knee-jerk. I mean, I'm sure if I overthought it, I yeah. don't know if I would have picked those three, but like my knee-jerk reaction was the ones I've watched the most that click, and I'm like, oh yeah, Spielberg. Like, yeah. Those are the three that come to mind. Yeah. I would probably put in my top three, it'd be probably Raiders, Close Encounters, and I'm trying to think, 
Oh, what would be that last slot? That last slot's really hard because I kind of, I mean, I do like E.T. I know you have problems with E.T. I've watched it fairly recently and I've really enjoyed it. But Close Encounters, I don't know, something about it really drew it, me to it much more. Well, music's actually integrated as part of the plot, though. I, yes, I, I, that's I, another I, thing. So I think that, that, one's, that one's a little different because not only is the score really important, but the score they incorporate into the movie as part of the plot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's some stuff where you get the blurred lines between there's terms in film. It's diegetic and non-diegetic music. And diegetic is whenever it's in the world and non-diegetic is whenever it's like the backing, like any kind of score or whatever. So if someone's playing the piano, it's diegetic. So like diegetic music they were using, like with all of that, right? That piano and the spaceship at the end, and sorry, spoilers. right, right. So <laughs> so for example, like if you're a big West Westworld fan like me, like very diegetic, they play the yeah. theme on the piano in this movie. Or uh, if you watched Alien Covenant, where they play the uh, where where uh, one of the uh, what's David is playing the flute and he yes. plays and he plays the uh, the theme from not from Alien Covenant, but he plays the theme from uh, Prometheus. Diegetic. Oh, see more more things that I didn't know. Yeah, I don't know what that last slot we would be. I'll tweet it out if any of you actually care. I care. Okay, well, Caleb cares. I'll you must pick Caleb. Alex. You must pick one. If if you're not, you're not a real Spielberg fan. Oh, Thus, say it Twitter. I that's actually and then if you, true. And then if you pick the wrong one, you're also not a Spielberg fan. I think I think it's probably it's one of those things where it's like if you pick E.T you're like uncool or something i think that's no E.T. is, is listen, that the dunk listen i mean millennials? firstly if you pick et you're wrong but that's okay <laughs> if you put it in there that's a respectable pick to be wrong um you know i think et is a fine selection i mean i felt bringing in the show with something as so iconic as raiders uh full brass with that secondary strings like i mean where it's like you let the brass lead and it doesn't have so triumphant yes so, triumphant it, that's a perfect triumphant word for it and like you get the, but you get that that edge of like swashbuckling swashbuckling adventurous yeah. like yeah yeah i mean just like spielberg raiders has a a huge mountain of impact on american and global pop culture i mean 1999 this film was deemed as uh, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by Library of Congress to be preserved in the film registry. Now, we're about to leave the score, as well as John Williams, <laughs> for our next Steven Spielberg we're gonna film. Can I leave John Williams behind when talking about Spielberg? Yes. Um, now, wait, before we do... I would like to talk about E.T., like its score sometime oh, yeah. in the future. Yes. But here's what I'm going to offer you specifically on this episode of Soundtrack, because this is extremely self-indulgent. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the Atari 2600. John Williams, his, his, you see, this is what happens when you take John Williams' score and you put it on the Atari 2600. It kills the video game industry. Yeah. Uh, buried in a New Mexico movie tie-in game, E.T., which uses the iconic John Williams theme for the film, just 8-bitified. May it rest in peace. May it rest in peace. Actually, I have to say, we've talked about video game music, another passion of mine, frequently on the show, but I think that's the first... What the, what a first thing to do for video game music on you this show. You pick one of the worst video the games worst ever, games made, ever made, made that has been li widely deemed for making the for crashing the video game industry in the 80s before Nintendo came and saved us all. Oh my god. 
Great well, pick, Alex. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, uh, thank you so much, E.T., and thank you so much, John Williams. Uh, we will definitely keep talking about Mr. Williams, but we do need to leave him to just talk about the score of our next film. <laughs> gigawatts yeah exactly well i'm sure you're all probably screaming at your podcasting device right now but alex steven spielberg didn't direct the 1980 film back to the future correct that is true (laughs) i know this throwing some zamenkis at us alex i am he did executive produce it obviously through his own production company amblin it's his baby i give i give him a lot of credit for that so still spielbergian in the sense of what the 80s in terms of film was right for the big stuff like the that whenever you say capital S Spielberg, this like this oeuvre of films, this this type of film right. is what comes up. Yes, and his fingers feel so much oh, in yeah. this work. Oh I mean, yes, there were so many films I almost picked for this slot as well, where because I wanted to do a film that was produced by Spielberg, so we didn't have to freaking ca- talk about John Williams for like an hour. Which don't get me wrong, Williams is great, but. Like in terms of like tiny nuances, it's like yeah. lots of brass, lots of strings. I mean, it still does it does a does work, but I wanted to have some like variants, right? You know, so I almost talked about Twister because oh, he did produce that. He did produce that, but wow. that score is really freaking weird. It's like, not it's actually not it's not in very an, good. It's not yeah. in order either. I don't like that score. It's, yeah, well, that would have been fun to have you rant about it. <laughs> um, and I almost did Poltergeist actually because there's the whole idea yeah. that he ghost directed it for yeah. Toby Hooper. So. Yeah. I, I, the way I look at this, this is Robert Zemeckis. I feel you know I need to go do the history now. I know him, Zemeckis and Spielberg technically came up kind of in the same group. Uh, of directors. I mean, there's yeah. there was a bunch of them. Uh, you can go watch in the Steven Spielberg documentary called Spielberg on HBO. Yeah, uh, where they talk about like it was Zemeckis and George Lucas and Polanski, oh, okay. um, yeah. Martin Scorsese, like this whole group of directors that all were on the. Uh, oh, um, Francis Ford Coppola, like yes. all these guys were like rising at the same time. But I always got the not that Zemeckis doesn't have his own unique style because he does, but like this Back to the Future always really gave me the the idea early on that. Spielberg was kind of mentoring Zemeckis for a long time. Yeah. And almost like a mentor figure, even though like they're probably about the same age, doing some more things. I always felt like it was more like Spielberg was showing him the ropes. Exactly. I mean, and I feel like those tonal elements come up a lot in in this particular work. Um, but yeah, so do you know who composed this score, actually? 
Yes, I do. Yeah, lay it on me, Caleb. Who Alan did? Silvestri. Yes, yes, he did. Uh, Alan Silvestri. Um, so he started his film TV composing career at 21, 1972. He did a film for the low-budget action movie The Doberman Gang, which it, I have not seen. I've not seen that one. No, but his main bread and butter from 1977 to 1983 was scoring the television show Chips, Chips? which is, yeah, it's been, it's C-H-I-P, I think it's about... California Highway Patrol, but I think it's a comedy. They made it into a couple of really crappy movies, I feel like, fairly recently, or at least in the aughts. Sounds like Super Troopers or something like that. Yeah, I think it's purposely like Super Troopers, really, that kind of camp and stuff. I've not seen an episode, so, you know, complain at us if we're totally wrong. All of you Chips fans out there, tell us (laughs) if we're wrong. Hardcore Chips fans, please, write in. But Silvestri met Robert Zemeckis when the two worked on Zemeckis' film Romancing the Stone, 1984. Ah, yes, Romancing the Stone. Which is fun. This is so interesting to me. This is probably my favorite part of this back history about uh, Silvestri. So he collaborated with Zemeckis on Romancing the Stone. Zemeckis told Silvestri to make the composition for Romancing the Stone really, really over the top and grand and epic and adventurous. I mean, definitely channeling that Raiders, Indiana Jones. I mean, that's, I mean, obviously Romancing the Stone is huge rip off of that film and that franchise. And so they, he was asked to do that despite the film not being as like big and swashbuckling as, you know, adventuring as Indiana Jones. And he, and he specifically, Zemeckis told him to do that to impress Spielberg. Ah. Like, do this to impress Spielberg. Um, but Spielberg hated the score. Oh, well, hey, there you go. <laughs> you overdid it a little bit. He did. Good job, Zemeckis. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Um, regardless, I mean, he obviously still scored, scored the film and he landed the, um, Back to the future gig, regardless of Spielberg saying yes or no to that uh, situation. Um, and apparently he recorded the score only two weeks before the first yes. review. Yes, I remember film. reading that. Yes, like it was like cut down to the wire. Isn't it, it's like a classic, it's a classic iconic uh, movie score. Absolutely. And Sylvester is the reason that we have Huey Lewis in the news singing the theme song. He actually suggested that to the producers. And uh, apparently uh, the Universal axed the first version like there was an, apparently a lost theme. Yeah, so he had to reshoot, they had to reshoot the whole film with Michael J. Fox instead of it was like Eric uh, Schultz, I think, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Just a, a guy, like, I saw, I've looked at a picture of him, and I'm like, man, this person doesn't look like a Marty McFly at all. I mean, that, can you imagine, I can't imagine anyone but Michael J. Fox being that role. And I right. know there's issues with family ties. Like, he was tied up in family, he was tied up in family ties, uh, which. Those family ties will get you every yeah. time. <laughs> uh, preventing him for being in the film. Eric Stoltz, not Schultz. Stoltz, gotcha. Um, so yeah, they eventually did settle on Power of Love, which again, love that song in a very unironic way. They used the, Okay, so that movie, so here's the thing about Back to the Future. It is super 80s, but like in the most endearing way possible. So there's a lot of movies from the 80s that really don't age well, and you're like, ooh, this is like hyper 80s in a way that doesn't go well. And you can look at this in Back to the Future Part 2 even, where you see their version of 2015, where you're like, man, this is what we thought the future was going to look in the 80s. It feels super 80s, but in an endearing sort of way. It's like how we envision things. It was, Honestly, it's quite a bit more optimistic uh, than I think yeah. we've we've gotten so used to like dystopian futures now. Like looking back, that's, what, that's the charm, though. It's like an optimistic look back at a very loving look back at the 1950s, but also in the sequel, like a nice... Uh, 
very optimistic look at the the future too. And that's kind of the nice thing about Zeminkis and the score too. I think the score really really captures this idea here that it's just it's fun. It's it's bright. It's 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 uh, yeah. It, it, the, the things are gonna be things are gonna be good. They're gonna work out. Optimism. Optimism. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in their future, Trump lost. So there you go. <laughs> I'm yeah. so sorry. I did not. Yeah. I, I couldn't resist that one. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but there is a there is a future according to Back to the Future where uh, Biff doesn't win, and that's the future I like a lot. Yeah, let's um, make that future. Yeah, exactly. Now, Caleb, one thing I love to geek out about is some of the weird stuff. I mean, I love all the behind the scenes drama of like film sets and and like the scoring process and studio intervention. I mean, being on a set in which that is happening really sucks. Oh, of course. But, like reading about it later just like I, this is the one my biggest criticism on the disaster artist i really wanted more of that and i didn't get as much of that as sure. i wanted um but i i'm just a sucker for that kind of stuff so one super interesting thing about the original release of of this album through mca was that the soundtrack only actually had two orchestral pieces like the score released quote score they just called it the soundtrack they only had two of the score songs on it like the scored pieces by Silvestri so Silvestri scored the whole movie but they only, only used two, two pieces came onto so the, the 1985 release of the, the soundtrack was it the rest of the soundtrack just like pop songs that were yeah yeah the I mean it was a little, those that two Huey Lewis and the new songs right. um the, the the theme song and then the other one about the time travel the shoot i didn't write that one down um but yeah there's those two songs back and just in time yeah yeah back in time and then johnny be good and then all of all that, that stuff. stuff okay yeah yeah um so what the two songs that were on it though was the theme which we've already heard and the second is this track we're about to hear oh. here it is folks clock tower composed by alan silvestri directed by robert zemeckis for the film back to the future and produced by steven spielberg
So yeah, Caleb, tell me about that for yourself. Uh, I, I mean, it's just so nostalgic, Alex. It brings back all the memories. What of what my, memories? Uh, well, so specifically, like, um, I have it. You want to hear a dorky story? Yes, absolutely. Of course I do. Okay. It's Caleb. Come on, dude. So I actually <laughs> didn't see Back to the Future at super young. I like So my first recollection of this movie uh-huh. was for some, I don't remember why, I was at a sleepover. I was probably like eight or nine years old, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe younger even. But I remember coming home. And it was my parents were watching it on TV, and I didn't. I had no context for what was going on. I just saw like Marty McFly trying to get to the car, like getting in the car. But the thing that stuck out was, of course, like the iconic Doc Brown attaching the the cables when the lightning yeah. strikes and stuff. And I only saw that part and then dozed off. And my parents put me in bed or something. So I actually thought for the longest time I dreamed the whole thing up. Shut up. Yeah. No. Way. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I was like, man, that was a weird dream I had. So then, like, I, I don't know when it was like three or four, probably even longer. Like, it was probably solid high school by the time I or middle school by the time I like this actually watched the movie. And I was like, oh my god, I've seen this before. Where have I seen this before? Oh yeah, it was that random thing I thought I dreamed up that I saw. And my parents were watching on TV one time. That's. That's incredible. That that that's actually really incredible. I that's like all of my random ridiculous dreams if I like wake up and then find out that they were real. real. Like, I know. oh my god, you just you kind of inceptioned your tiny Caleb self. A I know. Bit. I know like I was like holy crap, I can't believe this is a real movie. <laughs> wow. I, so I, but the, yeah, no the score of course like the, it the, it has all the momentum riding into it like and that that, that climactic moment is just like you're on pins and needles. You're like, oh, you're like, oh my god, is Myers gonna make? Is he gonna make it? Yeah, and they, I mean, it's you know, grade A screenwriting for for that film. Like, just the pacing of it is just top notch, and you're just like compelled to watch the entire time. It's you know? a nice lean, quick movie. Yeah, and it's and it's lean. It's not bloated, but it still feel like you're having like you're having a lot of fun and you don't feel like you're being talked down to or you you don't feel like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like feel it, it like doesn't it's pandering no it, it's a movie for fan- so Zeminkis is good at the, he's really good at this he is really good at making not all of his films are family films but he's very good at making family films understanding how to make family films for the family mm-hmm. like in the same way Pixar makes family films like it's like yeah we want to make let's make a movie your kids can watch but we're not dumbing it down so that you know, it's not speaking down to the audience because it's geared specifically towards children. Like it's a, a film that offers a lot of excitement for kids uh, and it's got all the momentum and it's quick and it's got the jokes and the music. But also there's like a lot of really good themes for adults and the characters are great. Like it's it really is a great family film. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, yeah, Zeminkis is amazing at doing that, which, again, I would credit some of that to Spielberg also being really good at making family films. Yeah. And, and yeah, because you can feel throughout this, like, Spielberg's hand, and even John Williams's hand. Like, it honestly... It does feel like a vaguely John Williams yeah, score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because of the, the simple fact that, you know, this feels within, like, Back to the Future feels within Spielberg's wheelhouse, and because Spielberg always went for a specific type of sound for his scores, this also feels like a very John Williams-esque sound. I mean, there is, I think there there's some more... <laughs> I don't know, some more interesting rhythmic elements. And I feel like it's honestly like a little bit more fun. It feels like it's a little more tongue-in-cheek and winking. Because Williams is good at the, you know, I am, you know, I am proclaiming to the universe this is, uh, this this is such an important thing. Even his fun stuff is still a little more bombastic. It's heavy, bombastic, but in a good way. But this feels like a little lighter and a little more fun. A little bit of camp, too, which I'm sucker for. Right, well, I think about comparing this to, like, the Hook soundtrack, for example, which is a good score, but, like, it's... 
Like this feels more fun. Yeah, yeah. It's I like would. I would have picked. I would have picked Silvestri to score Hook over probably Williams. I think so too. Because that I feel like that naturally is a better fit. Um, but yeah. So this song, Clock Tower. Um, it was so in the original soundtrack press by MCA. Um, in 1985, there was a compilation track that this was a part of called the Back to the Future Overture, um, which w- which included the Marty's Letter sound cue, and then Clock Tower, and then 85 Lone Pine Mall at the very end of it. So it's interesting. It's like, not only did this song, you know, it did make the soundtrack, and then a lot of the music that Silvestri composed didn't. Um, it was also sandwiched in, a, in one song, in one track with two other pieces um it's it's since then there's been an actual official print and release of the full sylvestri score right, at the time it was hard to come by yeah absolutely and the fact that it was like two songs two orchestral pieces from it and then that was it um, but i'm glad that you know in the age of the internet and our you know more i guess aware society it's like people are more kind of aware of film music i feel like these days oh yeah um, so it's and people want to con- actively consume film music instead of just want to enjoy the big hits by Huey Lewis in the news off of the album. When you, and so much so that you see a lot, I mean, like something that's really common these days is like you have two separate soundtracks. You have the score and you have the soundtrack. It's yeah. more the pop music. And I deeply, deeply appreciate that approach. And yeah. I'm thankful for it. I'm sincerely thankful for it. Um, yeah, I, I just, I like, I remember Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim did an, an amazing, they had... I'm pretty sure they had both. They had the score and then they had like all the original songs from the sex bomb. And yeah, I, I just, that, that allows you, I mean, a, it allows the studio to make more money. Cool. Uh, but it also allows the art that these people have made and they've like strived over and struggled over to like get heard and right. not just get condensed into one like idea. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. A more nuanced. Yeah, exactly. More nuanced. Um, obviously, since these films were made, uh, they've been hugely, widely successful, um, and they have a big place in pop culture. Um, so much so that uh, the the DeLorean is the featured uh, vehicle of choice for the main character in Ready Player One. Yeah. Speaking of Caleb, how about you hear a little bit of this? that that track was composed by none other than Alan Silvestri. Uh-huh. Finally selected to compose his first Steven Spielberg score for 
the film that's going to be released March 29th, 2017, Ready Player One. Oh, snap. Hey, that's his first one? First one. Oh, man. Okay, so I I knew, I had actually just read this morning that, that like, I, did, I didn't even dawn on me that John Williams wasn't doing the score. And I didn't know this was uh, Sylvester's first Spielberg film, though. Yeah, no, it's actually kind of mind-blowing. Because I know William, the reason Williams was not available, he was not available because he was working on a certain Last Jedi film. Yeah, a certain Star Wars film. Right, and right. they, you know, they're a little more completionist on, on Star Wars than this. Honestly, it makes... I think it, it fits pretty well, Oh, though. it fits yeah. perfectly. This, this track sounds like the perfect synthesis of Ready Player One and the, like, almost like Steven... Steven Spielberg and John Williams like greatest hits it like it's it definitely still feels like what we talked about with Silvestri and how he feels a little more lighthearted but man did I not get a lot of Harry Potter one in that soundtrack on that score like just the uh shoot like some of the just like the triumphant like like the great great hall music I can just hear it in my head as as we're talking about it just some really fantastic Mm. stuff um but yeah so like it sounds so much like a callback to this but it's definitely um Silvestri is putting his own spin on it which I really appreciate it um so Caleb I think you went to a certain tiny film festival recently it was like really small. It was like in Austin, Texas, but yeah, it wasn't like no that one, big a deal. No one's ever heard of it. Uh, ever? They might have premiered Ready Player One at this small film festival. Yeah, the the, the quote small unquote film festival. Uh, so South yeah, by Southwest. Okay, so yeah, so South by Southwest. Uh, well, thanks for bringing that up. I actually haven't had a chance to talk about it on a podcast. I yet. know. So that's why I wanted to prompt you to oh tell this. God. This actually is a really cool story. Okay, so uh, a couple. I mean, uh, just the, we'll stick with Ready Player One. Um, so here's the thing, Ready. Player Player One was actually not advertised at the festival. They had a Ready Player One experience there that was like a big VR. I unfortunately did not get to participate in that because it was only for two days. Um, but it was like a really big VR experience that walked you through the world of Player One. It was just, a, uh, yeah, I've seen pictures of some of my friends That's who get in. really, I mean... Pretty almost brilliant on marketing. the nose i mean it's like oasis is all about vr yes, and yeah that's right fantastic. it was actually yeah i know it, it was a perfect fit uh because i think this game really is a celebration of video games in a lot of ways yeah and spielberg actually claims to be a gamer he's a producer on on, on several games like boom blocks is one of my favorites uh back on okay. the nintendo wii uh he, he's a producer on video games and he, he says you know he like in interviews he'll say it again but i've been following he's not just making this up now like he's been saying this for like decades like yeah. oh, i'm a huge gamer i was playing pong back when i was working on jaws you know? yeah i mean he wouldn't have had a really shitty game made of his movie if he wasn't a gamer <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't have buried it if he wasn't a gamer <laughs> oh my goodness yeah so he's a big gamer anyway so they do this thing and then this is the point where everyone's like okay, Ready Player One's almost certainly going to be here. Why would they have this huge VR experience at South by if it's not going to be here? So it was one of those things, but it was secret. So for like two days, everyone's like, all right, when are they going to announce Ready Player One's here? What's up? And then finally, they, they, they I, I get like an, a press release in my inbox. Is Ready Player One's going to be South by Southwest? I'm like, oh my God. Oh, Spielberg's not on the, on the list. Dang. I was like, but secret in my head, I'm like, it's a world premiere. He's going to be here. Yeah. So uh, I go... Uh, I get to the theater two and a half hours early, and I still didn't get in. Oh to my the world god, premiere. that's a really. I w- should you have gotten there like five hours early? Apparently, no. Here's the thing: it's one of those scenarios because 
they were I was one of the I was like at the very front. They were like counting people down. I was like eight people shy of getting in. No. I was like, I can see, I think I'm gonna make it. And they're like, nope, no more. And I was like, no, don't don't say that. Don't close don't the doors. Don't close the doors. Can I not stand in I'll stand, back? I'll stand in the balcony, whatever you want. No, we, we can't let you in. I'm like, oh crap. But um so it was the world premiere. Uh-huh. Several of the cast members were there, Ty Sheridan. Ben Mendelsohn, um, a lot of cast members were there. Spielberg made a grand entrance. He he pulled up in the DeLorean, like to the red carpet. And, wow. Yeah, I did his Spielberg thing. He did a, and he also did like a, a, a Q&A before and after. And he, it was really interesting the way he talked about it because he just talked about how much he loved video games. And you can find this all online on the South by Southwest website, by the oh, way. Oh, nice. Awesome. Um, it's like you, you could have been there. You were almost there. You were like 600 feet outside the door. I was within the vicinity of Steven Spielberg. Sure. It, I, you know, I was very close. In fact, in, in fact, I have friends who were there who shook his hand. So <gasps> I know, What? I know. We have friends they, that shook Steven Spielberg's I, I, hand? Steven Tyler from the Tower Theater might have shook his bless hand. He was bless your by, heart, Steven Tyler, because I know that man. And loves Back to the Future and oh, yes. Spielberg and in and Ready Player One. Yes. Uh, what the fuck? Yeah. Fuck you and bless you. Bless and you at the same I time. hate you yeah. and I love you. Exactly. Uh, shit. That was okay. the only movie at South by Southwest I didn't get into. I thought surely two and a half hours early. Would, no. It's world, wow. World premiere. Um, but no, it's super cool. Uh, apparently there was some the fun story. Uh, there was a, apparently some sound issues during the climax. The sound cut out. No. So they had to replay it a couple times. And I guess on the second time, the audience started making their own sound effects. Up. Shut so, up! Oh, so it became, it became like a, it became like a community. Like everyone was like pew 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 pow and explosions and stuff, and it became like a big theater. Uh, I would that would have been amazing like imagine being a director singing in a movie and of course it's getting screened like poorly because the sound keeps cutting out but then imagine the audience being so engaged that they make their own sound effects right well yeah no, exactly <laughs> that, yeah it, it was apparently a very magical experience because then apparently the one that finally got to working the entire audience went like wild oh my god it's like yeah, it's like a almost like the band, the four band that gets brought out before the band you want to play. And then when the band actually starts, you're like, it just rocks your face off. Right, right. Man. So I didn't quite get to see the movie. I got real close. I, got real, I, close. I was so close to being at the world premiere. I mean, to be fair, we're still, you know, within six degrees of meeting Steven Spielberg. Like less than six degrees because I, mean, I know Steven the, and Steven knows Steven. I mean, he shook Steven Spielberg. Nice. They're, 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 Steven. Steven, I mean, they're, they're basically best friends, right? Oh, BFFs, of course. <laughs> I mean, me and Mark Hamill shook hands. I mean, we, we're deep bonds. Oh, how long did it take you to drop that one on the phone? <laughs> I, mean, you know, like, I mean, to be fair, you did get to meet God, basically. I, I basically, I mean, I met Luke Skywalker and the Joker. I, I mean, at the same time, it was, it was yeah. pretty amazing. Uh, you know, yeah, I didn't get to see uh, Ready Player One world premiere, but I did get to see a Quiet Place world premiere. I did get to see a world premiere of the Director and the Jedi, which is the feature length documentary that came out on the Last Jedi Blu-ray. And I also got to be at the not quite world premiere, but one of the very first screenings of Wes Anderson's I Love Dogs. So, I mean, you know, I, I made out pretty well. I think you did, and I think that incredible i mean it sounds like that entire south by experience really kind of like amped you up for ready player it did no it did it was funny because i've been casually excited for just because there was a while i was skeptical the first trailer didn't blow me away and i'm like eh, and the whole leg photoshop debacle yeah oh god the leg on the poster when the post came out and i realized yeah his next movie's gonna be ready player one i was like you know what Post was a great reminder of why Spielberg is so amazing. Yes, uh, and it was like, yeah, I'm ready to see another blockbuster Spielberg. We haven't seen him do that in a good while, so yeah, yeah let's let, let's take let's go for a ride, you know. And then 
Uh, and then getting to South by, there was all these buzz. Oh, there were dudes in costume with like the VR headsets that were marching around chanting and shouting things. Like wow. it, they made a whole deal of it, like just during the festival. Wow. Um, so like, yeah, it got me amped up for it. And then by the time the movie premiered, I was like, all right, I'm ready for this thing. And then I missed it, which only made me be like, oh, crap, now I really want to see it. Yeah, yeah. And you'll actually hear it with no sound problems. Exactly. Just as the listener will hear this track with no sound problems. So this track, again by Alan Silvestri, for Ready Player One to be dropped very soon. I actually realized that I said earlier it the year was 2017. It's actually 2018. 2018, Oops. time travel. Yeah, yeah, basically. We forgot to change the calendar on our N64. <laughs> basically. So uh, this is the Oasis theme, which um, Caleb and I were talking. Basically, it sounds so much like if Harry Potter... But Indiana Jones and they had a music baby. and they had a music baby because they got the chanting and then you also have like kind of the tribal drums right. and then a lot of the high adventure feel mm -hmm. for it. But then when you get in the last like 20, 30 seconds, it transitions more into something that feels really Zemeckis. You know, what? And, but at the same time, you know what? It really does sound like video game music. Yeah. Like I, it's, it, great. it's not quite Halo, but it feels like it would belong in a game like. Halo. Oh, yeah, yeah, Definitely. Now that you mention it, it really sounds like the that first segment uh, with the chanting. It really, well, I mean, again, it's set in a video game, so definitely sounding like Halo or video game music. There's that the Halo original theme, right? Great A stuff. Like with, there's like a lot of chanting in it, and it's really incredible. Um, yeah, I should probably just put it in the show notes just if you want to compare and contrast. Um, but anyway, I think that particularly this track, and there's only been two drop for the soundtrack so far, the score of the film, um, as of March 30, 23rd of the year of our Lord 2018. Um, so that's really interesting to me. Um, they picked these two particular tracks. Um, and one thing that I find really interesting about this film, and I'd love to hear your thoughts in, about this, I, can, can a film... I mean, we have Stranger Things, right? Which is probably the sim most similar piece of media that is like, yes, we are, I, I mean, of course, we're forward thinking with Ready Player One, it's set in the future, but Stranger Things being set in the past, it's like, yeah, here are all these pop cultural highlights from the 1980s. We still have that with Ready Player One. And the tones seem to be really similar, but 
unless you're really setting something in that time period or like obsessed with it, like Ready Player One is with Wade and said all that to say, can you actually have this type of tone from media and have it set in the 80s or be about the 80s? Because like, that's something that I'm really sad about, like with modern movie going. It feels like this, it feels like this middle action family type of film is lost to time yes lost in time it's been eaten up by two things it's been eaten up by superhero movies and it's been eaten up by 3d animated films uh like the pixar dreamworks type of things that's what families are typically going to see now there's not nearly as many of like live action you know i I guess we had jumanji last year which is kind of that's probably the closest but it still has a lot of that referential i mean it's it does have a lot of stuff with, again, haven't seen Jumanji yet, but like that referential thing. And it, again, it's a sequel to a property that was released in the 90s. In the 90s, you know, like. Ready Player One theoretically could accomplish a lot of things. It's a nice throwback to a different era of family genre, but in a modern context of, oh, video games. Well, kids play video games all the time now. In fact, I mean, the idea of plugging into a computer and playing an MMO all day is not lost on a lot of kids or spending a lot of time on their phones or on YouTube. You know, that's a real thing. So it's like applying that same technique, that same type of story, but to like technology that exists today. Um, I also look at it as like in a weird sort of way, and I I have to see the film to kind of confirm this, but in a lot of ways, I feel like it's Spielberg looking back on his legacy in a weird sort of yeah, way i don't know really he hasn't talked about it that way i don't think but it just like the way the properties they touch on even though he's actually removed a bunch of his properties that's why he can still have a delorean because of Eckes. yeah yeah and even he's even addressed he said well i took a couple of liberties but he actually went through and there was a lot of specific things he he pulled out yeah yeah it, like it, the ship the, the ship from uh the the encounter uh, close, close encounters, encounters they, yeah. they he took that out Th- yeah. things like that right yeah and and i find that interesting it seems that it's not so much necessarily a reflection on his own career but maybe just i, I get it's almost, about what he built though and what he inspired yeah, yeah that's kind of where i was going with it i was it's not necessary so he's not feeling nostalgic over the literal properties that by spielberg removing his own references it is more of a contemplation of this is where we came for him and this is what I helped build in cinema right. and not so much. Oh my God. I made this amazing alien movie right. about a really tiny, cute alien that make eats Reese's pieces. Right. And it's, and I think because I feel like if he had left a lot of that and again, the DeLorean, I don't know what the other thing he said was, you know, allowing it to stay in. Um, but whatever that other thing is, he felt it was important enough and it helped the story enough that it was necessary instead of it being like, Oh my God, I am the most amazing director. And I did all of these amazing masters. Yeah. He hasn't, I don't think he's approached it at all. He's not that kind of person. And and honestly, I think one of the reasons he's the guy and I, I would love to, I, I seriously would love to hear the make the whole, pre-production behind the scenes like how he decided to do to do this film because the other thing is this is a film that i think he's one of the only people who could do this film and pull it off all those all those bring all these properties under one roof because yeah. he's the only guy who's been in hollywood long enough that's built that cred with all these different studios yeah some of the i mean in terms of his personal prolificness i mean he he has the American, he's been knighted with, like as an American. Like, so I don't think he's a sir, but he's basically the American equivalent of a sir. Right. And he has the equivalent 
in like Italy. He has the highest net worth of any director probably ever since God. Um, You know, like if God is a director, Steven Spielberg is probably God. And he's worked with all the studios. Exactly. Like more than one time. I mean, the name. The name sells anything. Like people would, you know, bend over backwards for this man because he is, I mean, he's an important person. And I also like, besides the relationship, the fact that he's contemplating like we talked about earlier he came up in a group of contemporaries like lucas and others and so he gets to also do like a love letter to his buddy's works too right which is like whoa i mean wouldn't you love to do that as a creator if you had a cohort well, yeah, especially you just, you're at the end of your career you're at the end of your life you know like a lot of people do when yeah. they, get to their lives. they look back and kind of reflect on yeah what with the the impact they had. I mean, it's still kind of hard to feel like I, I know Spielberg. I feel like Spielberg still got a lot of movie left in him, despite. Oh no, he, I think he's he old. is. Oh, there's another Indiana Jones coming. Where well, he's still got years ahead of him. I don't, yeah. I, oh, sorry, I'm not trying to talk about him like he's done, but it's like he is reaching. I'm sure he's reaching. There's going to be a critical mass where you know he can't make two movies in like a year like he just did like he just did um, I, I mean no and, and that's the thing like there are directors like him and Scorsese that stay I think because they stay so active making movies they stay very sharp they're gonna be making movies until they die on the set that's like the poeticness of right. their their calling like right. that's what they're about right yeah so so I'm not saying he's I, I certainly don't think he's that not he, he's not he's not done or over I just think he's reached I'm sure he's at, he's, he's set, by the way he's 70 years old which blows my mind because he looks like he's 50 um, Absolutely. he looks younger than my dad he looks younger my dad. <laughs> Shh, sorry. Uh, oh, sorry, Dad. <laughs> he has reached a, a a stage in his life. I'm sure he might be it's ready like to when, calm it down a little. Well, and well, just you know, like when you hit a certain stage of your life, like you get, especially towards the end of your life, you're probably a lot of people are reflecting on the impact they've had. So I don't know. I just it's 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 a reading I have. I haven't even seen the movie, so maybe I'm totally off base. But it's yeah. something just the way it incorporates all these properties he's been associated with in one way or another. I think that's um, a solid reading of it, honestly. Spielberg, prolific career. Prolific career. Yeah. Uh, great scores, great yes, soundtracks. Three. So the other, I meant to mention this earlier and I did not. I keep teasing you with the three films that Steven Spielberg did not have scored by John Williams. One of them is The Color Purple. Ooh, One of them is okay. Ready Player One. Okay. <laughs> Color Purple. That, you know, oh man, I saw the documentary uh, Spielberg talks about that. That's a movie I kind of forget he directed, but it's actually a big deal. Like when you look back on the body of his career, that Spielberg, God, what's so great about him is he totally, time and time again, put himself way outside of his comfort zone. Anyway, the other one. Oh wow! So the ready, okay, got it. Okay, so the three films without Williams's score accompaniment, um, besides Ready Player One, Color Purple, Quincy Jones, Bridge of Spies, Thomas Newman. Oh my God, you're right. I didn't even think about that when I was watching Bridge of Spies. That's not John Williams, though. Yeah, Bridge of Spies marked the first time in 30 years that Spielberg didn't have Williams on and the second time in his career. And then we have Ready Player One like two years later. I mean, it happens like now that Williams has an internal blood contract to Disney for Star Wars. I mean, he's just going to have to deal with the fact that he gets Well, and I think he's slowing down a little bit, too. But yeah. I kind of wish I knew the story behind the color purple because that seems like such an odd one out, you know? Oh, man. I, I, I don't want to chase this rabbit. So okay. I first, I'm just going to go ahead and recommend listeners, if you have HBO, there is a feature-length documentary about the career of Sp- Steven Spielberg. You absolutely should watch if you're a Spielberg okay. fan. Required reading. It, it, it was it was like one of those... Again, that was kind of along the same lines. Like I saw, um, I saw the post. I was like, man, God, I 
forgot how much I love Spielberg. And then yeah. I watched that documentary. I was like, God, I forgot how much I really love Spielberg. I want a fanboy. Uh, and, too. Yeah. So, but they touch on the color purple, and it just and I don't know what the the story with the score is, but that Steven Spielberg is a guy, a director who was never content settling in a niche. He mm-hmm. always pushed himself. He right. always took risks. The color purple, when you look at the body of his work, you're like, dang, why did he do that movie? Like he had he didn't have to do that movie, but no. it's a um it shows that he was back in the even back in the day, he really wanted to empower the voices of the marginalized and and the best way that he knew how to do. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, that's a good question though, Alex. Maybe some of our listeners can do a little digging and find out why was it that uh, John Williams did not conduct the color purple. I'd love to know. Yeah, seriously. If you guys know, please tweet us as we're about to wrap up this show. Come and follow me if you want to talk about all of this stuff at Alex V. Brohannon, B-R-O-H-A-N-N-O-N. And you can also follow me on Instagram at the same handle. We can talk about all of these things, especially um, your favorite Spielberg films, how you like to dunk on Ready Player One, because I do find the dunks on the book very entertaining. So Caleb Masters... Where can people tweet you? You can always tweet at me on Twitter about all sorts of Spielbergian things because I'm on the Spielberg, yep, Spielbergian the train. Spielbergian uh, train. train right now. Uh, that's at C Masters Talk. That's letter C Masters Talk. And if you just want to tweet at the Cinematropolis or just talk with us about your po- favorite things about the podcast or, you, hey, actually, better yet, why don't you tweet us your favorite Steven Spielberg score at the Cinematropolis? And you can do that at on Twitter at the Cinematrop, or you can always comment in the uh, comment section below here. Or if you want to hit us up on Facebook, you can find us on facebook.com forward slash the Cinematropolis. Let us know, what is your favorite Steven Spielberg score? I would love to know because there's so many good options out there. Yeah, there's a lot of volume. I mean, even if you just want to look in the past couple of years, um, I mean, I love The Post. I felt like The Post had a really good score, even though I can't really conjure any of it off the top of my head. Um, It sounded American, I can tell you that much. Yeah. (laughs) Spielberg's had a huge career. There's a lot of scoring out there. So definitely check that out. After following us all on social media, you should listen to our final song to celebrate Steven Spielberg and, of course, the kind of the premiere of Ready Player One, regardless of what you feel about it. It's going to be fun and at least interesting. And we will see you next time taking us out with Huey Lewis and the News is The Power of Love.
don't hit pause yet. When we come back, Alexander and I will have a full sit-down interview with the legendary sci-fi fantasy author of the Blade Runner sequel novels and personal friend of Philip K. Dick, K.W. Jeter. Stay tuned. everybody uh thanks so much for tuning into this special talk with kw jeter we've got a really interesting insightful talk in store for you but before we jump into the talk i want to make a couple of acknowledgements uh firstly i want to once again give a big shout out thank you to steven tyler and the entire theater staff for hosting this interview and special screening of blade runner i it was really spectacular to catch this classic on the on the big screen for the first time and this we, we did watch but right before this interview we watched the final cut of the Ridley Scott film. Secondly, I want to give a big shout out and uh, maybe a slightly unofficial sponsorship plug uh, shout out to our good friend Caleb Haldane from the Red Six to Golden Corral podcast. Uh, so uh, Caleb actually, get, it was a huge help to me. He provided uh, catering uh, for those of us who were working in the event. Uh, some of us had, you know, between uh, in preparation for the event didn't have a lot of time to eat and Caleb saw to it that all of us had food uh, and uh, by bringing us all some some tasty uh, some, some tasty tasty tacos so uh caleb i just wanted to say thank you so much for for pitching in and contributing to this event in a really big way uh, it went a long way and uh also if you're listening you should absolutely go check out his podcast uh, red six to golden corral uh so big thanks to them uh and lastly i just wanted to make a quick note that in editing this episode we actually ran into some small technical difficulties with the audio from alexandra's microphone uh so there might be a little bit of inconsistency whenever she has the mic i've tweaked it a little bit uh but that audio is going to sound a little different so i do apologize for this inconvenience uh but with all of those uh mentions aside i hope you enjoy this really excellent insightful talk with kw jeter We're in for a real treat. Firstly, I want to introduce my co-host, Alexandra Bohannon. That's me, Alexandra Bohannon. Uh, I'm a contributor to Cinematopolis. I do podcasting on the Cinematic Drive, where I talk mostly about film scores and aspiring revenues. So if you do want to follow me, follow Caleb, uh, definitely check out us at cinematopolis.com. Uh, yeah, so that's my radio jockey. You like love, you know. <laughs> 
but we're really here uh, for the man of the hour right here, who is uh, K.W. Jeter. Now, K.W. here is actually a uh, writer and author who has worked a lot in science fiction and a little bit in fantasy, and he's also worked with a lot of properties. He actually wrote novel sequels to the original Blade Runner. So before there was Blade Runner 2049, we had written sequels in a book. Uh, three different books, uh, and uh, we're just going to sit down and, and take a moment to talk a little about KW. Uh, fun fact, two fun facts. One, I found out, interesting tidbit, you were the first guy to use, coin the term steampunk. Yes. Punk. yes. That's true. That's true. Uh, and uh, you were also uh, colleagues with the late Philip K. Dick, uh, who wrote the novel uh, Do Androids Dream Electric Sheep, which is the source material for Blade Runner. Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would say colleague, because when, when I knew Phil, he was, you know, a really well-established science fiction writer, uh, much older than I was. You know, I was just part of that uh, last little circle of friends that he had in uh, Orange County, uh, California. California, and uh, you know it was kind of a you know strange experience. Uh, he, he was a, a, a complicated person, uh, but also a good friend, and uh, yeah, that um, you know it's one of those things where. Uh, he was, before I met him, he was probably the, uh, the, the writer I most admired in the world. But you have to remember that was back at a time when to be a Philip K. Dick fan was like, a, like being in a Philip K. Dick novel. <laughs> you, you were like privy to some secret knowledge that nobody else knew. But now, of course, Philip K. Dick is a very established icon in the American literary pantheon, which is exactly where he should be. He's a fabulous writer. But in the late 60s, early 70s, when I was you know, scrabbling through these horrible, dusty, old used bookstores looking for the copies of the battered old uh, paperbacks of, of Phil's novels, uh, if, if you went to your English professor and said, yeah, 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 um, Jane Austen, great, uh, James Joyce, fine. Have you ever read any Philip K. Dick? They would just look at you like you were a, like you were a bug. <laughs> You know, like like one, you were like, you know, pulling their legs, saying, "Yeah, there, there's this writer named Philip K. Dick," and blah 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 blah, and and of course, you just got nowhere with it, uh, and so it was like really a secret little knowledge that you had, which is of course the the great recurring theme of Phil's novels of having secret knowledge, and um, like I said, you you really had to work. Now you can just go to Amazon.com and order every. Philip K. Dick novel in the world, but it, it took a certain amount of dedication back then, and like I said, digging through these dusty old used bookstores, and um, so myself and Phil's other young friends there in Orange County, um, you know, we would talk about this, and there, there was one holy grail, one book that was impossible to find, and uh, that was um, uh, Phil's novel called uh, The Cosmic Puppets. 
and um, it's still hard to find. For some reason, that one never gets reprinted very much. But I remember after years of searching for it, uh, I found it. Somebody had come into a used bookstore in Fullerton, California with a big cardboard box of beat up old books. And I was the first one to be there in the store and to, to, to scrabble through it. And there it was, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the cosmic puppets. And um, it's, like, it's like Willy Wonka getting the golden ticket or something, right? Absolutely. I, I mean, it was like an electric shock. And of course, the first thing I had to do was call my other friends and say, I've got the cosmic puppets, and you don't. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, so like I said, uh, being uh, 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 an acquaintance or a friend or an admirer of uh, Philip K. Dick uh, back then, it was, uh, yeah, like I said, like uh, being in an actual Philip K. Dick novel. Well, it's interesting just how much the, the internet changes things, right? And like I said, this is exactly what should have happened. But at the same time, it kind of, well, you know, for me, it kind of... People now aren't having the fun of being in the Philip K. Dick novel that that we were in back then. Now it's like, yeah, sure, you know, of course, it's not secret knowledge anymore. But back then, it was secret knowledge, and that was kind of fun. It's like the, the secrets out, right? Yeah, and it's all over the place. Which again, exactly the way it should be, but. Not as much fun. Can you tell us a little bit about the film we came here and watched tonight, your first experience with Blade Runner? Uh, but there's, was there anything in particular that struck you about the film or the maybe the script, if you read the script before seeing the film? Well, you know, this is... Yeah, of course, the the revised Blade Runner, uh, not the not the original version, and um, myself and a couple other of, of Phil's acquaintances uh, back then were uh, we were some of the first people to see uh, the original Blade Runner before it was released. You probably know or are familiar with the fact that um, Phil Dick died before the movie was released while it was still in production. Principal photography had been finished. They were working on uh, post-production. And um, the Ridley Scott organization, Rid Ridley Scott, who I guess is now Sir Ridley, but back then he was just Ridley, uh, he, he has a reputation for being kind of an asshole. But he was absolutely wonderful to Phil. They were, they were working on post-production, and they sent out a limousine to, to Santa Ana to pick Phil up and take him to a movie theater in Long Beach, California to show him the first part of the movie that they had finished uh, looping the sound on. And it was just a 20-minute uh, sequence. And Phil told me that, uh, later that it was the sequence with the uh, pursuit of Zora and uh, killing Zora and the crashing through the windows and everything like that. So he got to see a 20-minute sequence from the movie and Ridley Scott was there and all the other people and everything and they really made a big deal out of, out, out of him and he was just over the moon about it. They, they, were, they were so nice to him and it kind of indicated that the people working on the film knew who he was even back then and they were real, really into, uh, into Phil's work. So like I said, um, it was one of the happiest times I ever saw for Phil Dick that he had such a wonderful time and they, they, they treated him so nicely. And so um, 
when they finished uh, the post-production on the work, on the movie, um, the um, Orion Pictures people uh, called me up and called up uh, another friend of Phil's young person, uh, part of the Circle Friends, and they said, we understand that you were friends with the, the late Mr. Dick. And, you know, and they said, we'd, we'd like you to be our guests and come up to a, a studio in, in Hollywood and, and see the finished uh, uh, film before it's released. So sure, of course, you know, that, that was a fun thing to do. So um, we went up together and it was like this really mysterious place. It was like in an industrial part of like North Hollywood, really grimy industrial part. And there wasn't really anything like lights or anything. It was just like on a, on a dark alley with no street lights. And you had to kind of like say a secret word or something. And they, <laughs> and they, and they rolled past this big, you know, chain link fence and let you in and everything like that. And you're thinking, Boy, I hope this isn't a setup. <laughs> this is not good. But but actually, then they they take you inside, and it was like this beautiful like Hollywood movie palace that's just used for this kind of purpose. And so they had uh, three screenings uh, for um, movie reviewers, and then people like me and and other people that they wanted to be nice to. And um, so I remember uh, seeing the movie then, and. Uh, um, being a little disappointed in it. Was it the Harrison Ford monologues? Yes, <laughs> yes. The, 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 the original version had the horrible Harrison Ford tacked-on monologue. It had the tacked-on ending with the B-roll footage from The Shining. Yeah, from The Shining. You know, yeah, with, with the car going through the forest and some silly tacked-on thing about, well, after all that stuff about how these replicants just die, we think we have a way to keep her alive, and it's going to be a happy ending and everything. And so even just as a movie, I thought, wow, this is really not, not very good. I mean, they're, they're, uh, but, but, but at the same time, there were some wonderful things in it. I mean, you know, like Rutger Hauer. I mean, Ru Rutger Hauer just, yeah. just, just incredible. Um, and um, really, just about the whole ensemble, pretty good. And uh, so there was a lot of good things into it, but it was marred, you know, by, by the, by the, the, the poor uh, post-production decisions. And also, I guess, uh, for fans of Phil Dick's books, we were seeing the things, or we were thinking of the things that were left out of the movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, because in a lot of ways, you look at a lot of Phil Dick's writing, and he was one of the great mid-20th century novelists of uh, middle-class anxiety. Mm. And, and you read the book, and it's about a guy who's scrabbling to keep his hold in, in the middle class and not descend uh, down the economic scale. And he's, he's got this chance of doing that by collecting these bounties and getting the status symbol of, of a replacement uh, sheep. And so, yeah, for, for people who were like really marinated in the, in the books, the things that were, the differences really jumped out. And so it, it took kind of a long time for me to, uh, you know, uh, get 
either resigned or uh, or make my peace with that. Yeah. And, and so anyway, so we had that experience of seeing the movie and being a little bit disappointed in it. And also, um, you know, uh, the movie was not much of a, a, it wasn't a success when it was first released. It, 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 it did fairly poorly. And um, so there, there was that experience of, of being the first people to see it. Like I was telling Caleb and Alex, this is the first time that uh, I've seen this version, minus the horrible monologue, minus the uh, the tacked-on ending. First time I've been able to see it on a big screen, and, and it and it's so much better. <laughs> it it is so much better. I mean, whoever convinced Ridley, Sir Ridley, and and everybody else involved uh, to uh, allow them to. Uh, you know, uh, restore the film to what it should have been all along. I mean, they 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 did a, a hero's work when the, when they did that, uh, and, and of course, a lot of that took some real doing and some legal hassles. Uh, you have to remember that the very first name you see on the screen when the when the movie starts, it says Jerry Perenchio and I think Bud Yorkin. Okay, uh, they they were the 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 people who put up the money. Jerry Perenchio is is one of the richest man in in the world. Uh, he made a huge fortune later financing Univision, the Spanish language television channel. But at the time, he was also very rich, and he had made a lot of money doing episodic television. And he got talked into financing this film, the only film that he ever had anything to do with. He hated the experience. He hated the movie. He hated everything about it. And the reason why so many years passed before um, a sequel was made. There were constantly people trying to make a sequel, and they had to go through Jerry Perenchio, and he would just say, nah, hate the movie, nothing blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. It's like a gatekeeper. And, yeah, and I think at some point, the the rights uh, passed to his son. I think Jerry Perenchio was still alive, but now his son controls a lot of the properties. And his son said, hell yeah, let's make a sequel, and, and let's, let's do the revised version, and all that sort of thing. So... Yeah. That was one of those things. The movie was kept on ice for quite a while uh, because of Jerry Perenchio just hating it. Right. Yeah. So speaking of sequels, so you wrote the novelization sequels of two Blade Runners, specifically the theatrical cut. Um, yes and yes, yes and no. What what happened was, you know, of, of course, a novelization is a novelization of an existing screenplay. So no screenplay. Uh, what happened was. Um, when Phil died, his estate went to his three children. Um, and um, it was quite a complicated thing for quite a while because he had three children by three different wives um, in sequence, not simultaneously. Um, and um, he, he died without leaving a will. And two of the, chil two of the children were still Minors, his elder daughter um, Laura had just started college, and so the the estate was a was a mess, and there there were some real complicated things going on, and I wound up having to testify in Orange County Superior Court. <laughs> Uh, because one of the ex-wives was suing for control of the estate and uh, was going to keep it rather than letting the children have it. And it just, 
huge mess. And um, at a certain point, because of you know the estate being messed up, the three children were uh, approached, or you know through their parents, uh, they were approached by the uh, by uh, uh, the agent and the publisher, who uh, said, "Look, you know, I think we can manage, you know, doing at least a, a book sequel or a two book sequel, and maybe a third book or something." And we're we're offering quite a lot of money uh, if if you'll agree to this, if you know, and. Um, they, they and they they uh, the publisher said and we've we've got a couple writers who we think will do a good job on it and we'd like to use that one of them and uh, I had already met and known the children while Phil was still alive uh, the the elder daughter Laura and then the younger daughter Isa. Uh, who was about 12 years old when I met her, and then the, the little boy, Christopher. And um, the, the, the three children said, uh, no, we, we don't want those people to write the books. We want K.W. Jeter to write the books. He, you know, he, 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 he was our dad's friend, and you know, we really like him, and we've read some of his books, and he's, you know, we, we want him. So, okay. So I was approached then by the representative of the children saying, you know, it's kind of a, a thing. We've got some, a lot of money sitting here on the table, and then frankly, the... The kids could use it, you know. There, there's, you know, with, when Phil died, and obviously no more books were being made, and all this sort of thing. There was still money coming in, you know, but it was it was tied up and a lot of problems. And they asked me if I would do it, and I said, you know, this this is. This is just about, in some ways, the stupidest idea I've ever heard. You know, you know, writing a sequel to you know a wonderful book that really doesn't need a sequel, and then trying to make a sequel that combines both the movie and the book. And I said, that's impossible. It can't. It can't be done. And they said, we'd really like you to try. Uh, 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 Okay, so so I said as long as, as long as you're you're reconciled to the notion that this is going to be a flaming disaster in some ways, <laughs> you know. But but at the same time, I mean, it will be an interesting flaming disaster, <laughs> you know. And and also, I, I I hope it'll have some merits on its own. So that that was what happened. The the children essentially uh, uh, approached me and and asked me to do it, and uh, you know so. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, and 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 if you look now, the 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 kids have are are adults now, and the the younger daughter has really become the administrator administrator of the estate, uh, Issa Dick. So that I noticed this that if you look, uh, if you watch the credits scroll for um, the Netflix uh, Man in the High Castle, you'll see executive producer Issa Dick. That's that's the younger daughter, and she's done a fabulous job. I mean, uh, she's done an incredible job of administering the estate and making a lot of these movies and things possible. I mean, she's done a great job. Yes, I'm just curious. What was your approach to that material? You, you, it sounded like you knew it was complicated. So like, wh how, where did you start with that? Well, you know, uh, I knew there were some things I, 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 I couldn't uh, bring back into it. Um, 
So in some ways, the movie, the the books I wrote follow on after the movie. They are sequels to the to the movie, but what I did was I tried to bring elements from the original novel by Phil Dick into the uh, into these books, and and sort of work on them that way. Gotcha. So how would you say like later revisions, you know, the ones we just watched, contradicted, you know, maybe the things you wrote in your sequel? That's a very good question. I don't think there. I don't think there really is a contradiction, uh, because obviously there will be contradictions between what I wrote and the new movie, uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, but. Um, uh, my books follow on in the sense that um, somebody tracks down um, uh, Rick Deckard uh, afterwards, and then the story follows on from that. So uh, in that sense, um, this restored version without the tacked on ending uh, is actually more consistent with what I wrote as a sequel and more consistent with what apparently uh, they've done with Blade Runner 2049, which I haven't seen yet. Um, so uh, not a big contradiction in terms of the linkage. In terms of what happens after that linkage of somebody tracking down Rick Deckard to wherever, wherever he's escaped to, there's quite a lot of difference. So I guess my next question is, you, you say that you did take inspiration from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Like, How much of that, what sorts of things did you look for from his novel that you incorporated into your book? I think in, in that sense, uh, what I tried to expand on in my books was that there had to be some kind of explanation for um, uh, these... Um, the, the economic thinking behind the, the system of using these these replicants as slave labor. And uh, I, I remember actually having a discussion with this, about this with Phil, saying, you know, Phil, you know, I mean, this is very dramatic and it works great as drama, but economically, uh, it, may, it makes very little sense uh, to, 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 to send people off to colonize other planets and, and, and give them these super strong slaves who are, if they don't kill you, they're only going to last four years. They've got four year built in obsolescence. And uh, I mean, Toyotas last longer than that. Uh, so, I, so I remember telling Phil, if, if I were being recruited to, to colonize a distant planet and somebody gave me a choice between one of these replicants and a backhoe, I, I'd take the backhoe. <laughs> Backhoes only kill you by accident, you know. Uh, and he said, "Yeah, you're right. It's it's, it's all messed up economically, but it, it works so great as drama." I said, "Yeah, it's great." And, and also the, the 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 sympathy element was kind of crazy. That uh, you know, you've got this Rick Deckard who's Blade Runner going to track down these, and I'm going, you know, really, this is kind of asking us to be a uh, uh, sympathetic with a, uh, a a slave hunter, somebody who, who hunts down runaway slaves. And I said, you know, this is kind of creepy. And he said, yeah, it is. That, that's the great part about it. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moral ambiguities there that really just get touched upon a little bit. 
in, in, in the movie. And I think also in, in, in my books, I, I tried to make a little bit more out of... They talk about the empathy test and the Voigt-Kampf and everything, using the exact terms from uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And I think I expanded upon that a little bit in my books where I said, look, if, if the quality of empathy is what defines a human being, then we're going to have to start defining a lot of dogs and cats as, as human beings. I mean, I've known dogs and cats who certainly had more empathy than my first wife. And, and so in, 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 in that sense, I would have been entitled to, to shoot her and, and, and uh, you know, let, the, let the dog and the cat live. Um, and, and, and the dog and the cat should have been able to vote and do everything else that human beings can do if passing the empathy test was how we define a human being. So I, so I tried to work on that a little bit more. Oh, well, of course, uh, Philip K. Dick, he's, I mean, a hugely influential when we wouldn't have a room full of uh, fellow nerds without <laughs> Philip K. Dick. Um, so, obviously, we have Man in the High Tower, Minority Report, and, you know, of course, the new Netflix series, Electric, is it Electric, oh, Electric Dreams. Electric Dreams. Dreams. Yeah. That's right. Um, tell us more about how his work in particular, you, you talked earlier about how oh. he really is a huge influence on you. I just would like to hear how that's, like, evolved you and I guess touched you as a human and a writer? Uh, I think you have to also remember that um, uh, Phil Dick as a writer was very funny. He was a great humorist. You read some of the books and they are just, you know, uh, uh, one of the great illustrations of using humor in fantastic fiction, uh, probably him and Robert Sheckley, uh, you know, really uh, just mopped up the floor with their with their ability to to use uh, humor in a genre that can skew awfully serious. Yeah, yeah, and, and even pompous and ponderous and everything like that. So uh, in that sense, one, one of the great lessons that any writer, aspiring writer or practicing writer can, can get from reading Phil Dick is the notion of this absurdist humor that keeps bubbling up even at, at, at the most dreadful moments. So there's that. And... Um, I think also um, there's that sense that quality of prose comes second to the power of the story. Uh, if you've got a great idea, it will be compelling uh, whether you painstakingly create Proust-like you know, passages or whether you just crank it out like, like a madman, which of course is what Phil did. Uh, so, so in that sense, it's, it's something that I, I tell people about. I said, look, as a great example here, don't, don't beat yourself to death trying to uh, polish your prose to something where it just knocks readers out with, with the, the beauty of it. Get the story down, get the story down, move from point to point to point as fast as you need to, and worry about the prose quality to later. Uh, worry more about the power of, of the idea and the story and the, and the, and the forward motion. So, and, and, in, and in that sense, 
I, I think people overlook the degree to which um, Phil Dick was not so much a science fiction writer, but he was a thriller writer working in the science fiction genre. And, and this is kind of understandable when you when you read Phil's uh, biography, uh, and there's been a couple of them, where you realize that he wanted to be a writer and he started taking uh, classes from um, Anthony Boucher. And Anthony Boucher you know, had these little you know, workshops in, in San Francisco or elsewhere were in the Bay Area, and uh, Phil would go to those. And of course, Anthony Boucher was like this walking encyclopedia of crime and detective and mystery fiction. And so in, in, in that sense, um, the, the, the big breakthrough, the, the, the genius synthesis that um, Phil Dick was able to do was to take that power of American genre crime fiction, detective fiction, thriller fiction, and 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 use um, uh, science fiction materials, and of course there had been people who had done that before, but not as powerfully and and convincingly as, as Phil did. So in, in that sense, um, the, the the notion of, of thrillers is something that uh, I think a lot of people before they recognized what a great writer uh, Phil was, while they were still looking down on him, they would say, well. Sure, yeah, uh, but but he's really just a thriller writer. You know, saying like, what do you mean, just a thriller writer? Lots of times, I'll talk to aspiring writers, and I'll say, you know, think about writing a thriller first, a thriller that works and use the thriller mechanisms to, to explore the other things that you want to explore. And you can do anything with that. Uh, the, the thriller th thing can be the, the real skeleton, and then you can put science fiction flesh on that skeleton, or you can put domestic uh, issues on that, or anything you want to. And we've actually seen quite a lot of that, I think, uh, uh, over the last 10 or 12 years or so. So, I mean, you've already talked to uh, quite a bit about your relationship uh, with Philip K. Dick. How much of his of your work did he get to read, and did that influence how you would write things or rewrite things? Uh, how, how did that, what was that relationship like between the two of you? Uh, I, I think he only read two of my books. Uh, I, I, read a book, I had written a book while I was in college, and one of my professors um, had uh, given it to Phil, and Phil read it and liked it, and um, I get this phone call saying, Hi, this is Phil Dick. You know, uh, I've read your book. You know, like to talk, and so that was uh, my first book that he liked. And then I wrote a second book, and he hated it. <laughs> he, said, he said, this is really crap. You know, I said, well, yeah. Uh, I said, I'm trying to get something published here. You know, It's like, you know, I'm doing what I can. And uh, so I think he only, he, I think he only read uh, my, my first two books. And, and he liked one and hated the other one. So what are you going to do? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, come on. I mean, if you're, if you're a baseball player, you know, Adding 400 means you're Ted Williams. So in that sense, it was it was it was a, it was a posthumous influence to that degree. But 
that's the influence he has on the entire field now. I, I mean, it would be very hard to find any working science fiction writer from the you know, late 20th century till now who is not influenced to some degree uh, uh, by, by Phil Dick. He, he's become that big in the field. And, and it's all posthumous, and it's kind of, you know, I, I wrote a little piece about this. No, I got interviewed uh, by a magazine about this, and I said, you know, it's really a shame that he died at age 52 because he would have been having so much fun now, you know, with all these movies and TV shows and, and stuff. And uh, I, I remember um, he actually got invited to a, a, a rap party uh, when, when they were finishing, finishing up Blade Runner, he, and he did get to go to that. And so he said, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going up to this big fancy rap party up in, in Hollywood for the film and everything like that. And I said, okay, Phil, here's what you got to do. When you go to the party, first thing and the only thing you tell people is, I'm only here for the cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> and at, at that way, they'll think you're not just some literary science fiction nerd. They'll think you're, you're like, 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 like hip. Yeah, yeah, they'll think you're edgy. And, and um, I, I saw him the next day, and I said, well, how was the party? And he says, oh, it was great. <laughs> Best party ever. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. So, so you know, there's, there's obviously, you know, like, like, you know, must have been, you know, dozens or maybe even hundreds of people who can say, well, you know, we, we snorted coke with Phil Dick, you know, before he died, so... Very few people get yeah, to say that. Yeah, exactly. Ex well, in Hall, Hall could be yeah. could be Harrison Ford for all we know. Could be, could be. Yeah, <laughs> might, might have been, might have been. I, I, Phil never mentioned uh, meeting Harrison Ford, but uh, you know, chances are there. Yeah, Ch could could have happened. So, I mean, Phil may have never met Harrison Ford, but you definitely met Phil. So, how did that actually happen? I know. So, you were uh, undergraduate yeah. education, and how did he? He, he was going through a bad patch at that time. Um, uh, he he um, went up to a science fiction convention. He left his apartment in uh, the Bay Area uh, and went uh, in Marin County, I believe, and went up to um, a um, science fiction convention in Vancouver, British Columbia. And he, he was kind of messed up at the time and um, wound up, um, uh, this is all in the different biographies that have been written, uh, he wound up uh, attempting suicide. Um, he got taken in by a drug rehab place, uh, which was kind of abusive to him. It was one of those synonym-like uh, uh, drug rehab places where they just like exert total control over people and kind of keep them prisoners and everything. And he kind of cleaned up and decided he wanted to leave, but they wouldn't let him leave. And uh, he got in contact with a, one of the professors at the college that I was going to, uh, Cal State Fullerton in Orange County, a professor named Willis McNally, who was one of the first people to teach courses in science fiction in, in, in America. 
And he said, Willis, you got to help me. And to his credit, of course, uh, Willis, uh, Dr. McNally, uh, managed to, uh, to get a plane ticket at the airport in Vancouver. And he, and he just said, Phil, all you have to do is get to the airport. There's a plane ticket waiting for you. It, it will, they'll fly you down here to, uh, to Orange County, and we'll, 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 we'll put you up here, and we'll, we'll sort things out. It's just get here. And there's a plane ticket waiting for you. And so obviously, you know, Dr. McNally is like the real hero of, of this particular part of uh, Phil's biography. Uh, Phil somehow managed to sneak out of the drug rehab place, managed to get to the uh, to the airport. The ticket was waiting for him. He flew down to, um, to Orange County and um, Dr. McNally uh, had told some of his students that, hey, Important science fiction writer is coming down here to uh, uh, here to Orange County, and uh, uh, why don't some of you come with me and meet him at the airport? Uh, I wasn't in any of Dr. Magnelli's classes at that time, so I wasn't one of the people who went to the airport. But a friend of our, mine was, and he said it was. We were thinking, wow, Phil Dick, you know, oh boy, and he just got off the plane, and he looked like. Uh, a hobo. I mean, his clothes were all ragged. His shoes were like coming apart. All of his worldly possessions were in a suitcase that was being held together by a belt wrapped around it. He was just in, in terrible, terrible shape. And um, uh, uh, one of McNally's uh, students uh, gave Phil, you know, a couch to sleep on in, in his apartment while things got sorted out. And bit by bit, they they, they got better. Uh, but it, it was a matter of, you know, getting down there to Orange County. And um, so it, it was later, you know, after another professor had given uh, uh, Phil the, the book I had written that then I got to meet Phil. But it, it was um, it was kind of an interesting thing. I, I mean, but by the time that would have been about 10 years before Phil died. So Phil would have been about 42 years old because he died at age 52. Uh, by the time that Phil died 10 years later, the interest in his work had really started coming along, especially in Europe. So that by the time Phil died, he showed me his tax returns. Uh, he, he was making a, a, a pretty solid six-figure income you know, be, before he died. And he was able to do some things like when, his, when the apartment building he lived in converted to condominiums, he just bought his for cash. Yeah. I wasn't sure that was nice, and uh, he and also the cash that came in enabled him to uh, clear up his uh, child support debts. He had really lost contact with his three kids because of being just terribly behind on his child supports, and then and the the court that the child support went through would not allow him to have contact with the children if he was that far in debt on the on the, on the child support. 
But he was able to clear that off so that he was able to, to uh, reestablish contact with his children. And that meant a great deal to him. Uh, first, his, his uh, elder daughter, Laura, took time off from whatever college she was going to, came and, and visited him, and they just got along great. And then the, 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 the second daughter, Isa, came uh, over um, her uh, Easter vacation and and stayed with him and she was just over the moon uh that she got to spend some time with her father, uh, you know, who she barely remembered, and they just adored each other. They were, she was so sweet to him, and uh, except, except one thing, because it was Easter vacation, um, that she was there naturally. Easter came on Sunday, and yeah, duh. <laughs> and uh, the only problem was that uh, Phil always spent Easter Sunday meditating on the resurrection spending the whole day meditating on the res on the resurrection and and I remember saying Phil you know great whatever you want to do but that's not going to be much fun for Isa just sitting around in your condo all day while you you know meditate on the resurrection and I, I said okay tell you what I'll take I'll take I'll take Isa to the movies and I'll We'll have lunch, and that way at least she's not sitting around the whole day, um, uh, you know, well, this, this is going on. He said, okay, great. You know, so I, I took Issa, you know, 12-year-old girl. She and I got along really well. And I took her to see Roller Coaster and something about skateboarders. And it's like, I'm, I'm the only adult in the movie theater. <laughs> I'm surrounded by all these little kids. And, uh, and, and Issa had already seen Roller Coaster, and so she was able to tell me everything that was going to happen before it happened. You know, so uh, yeah, so uh, we, we, and then I took her to lunch and everything. So she at least got a little bit of a day out. Yeah. Yeah. Was was that the question? Okay. Yeah, and and, and, and you know, and, and 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 to see her now, having grown up, I mean, I I haven't had contact with her for years and years and years, uh, but now she's grown up. She's administering the estate, doing it brilliantly. And I think, by golly, I'm glad I took her to see Roller Coaster. <laughs> you know, maybe it had a big effect on her. By golly, it it started her Hollywood career. Who knows? You know? So. I want to shift gears a little bit here. I've got one one more question, and then we might, if we have some time, might take a couple of audience questions. Uh, but uh, obviously, you've had, uh, outside of Philip K. Dick, you've had a very impressive career of your own. You've written a lot of your own, uh, you know, fantasy, fantasy science fiction. Uh, you've got to play in some fun sandboxes, the Star, Star Trek, Trek and oh, the Star oh, yeah. Wars. Oh, sure. I, I mean, a lot of writers, uh, I mean, in the science fiction genre, it's one of the ways of, like, uh, making sure you, you, you make make the house payment is to uh, is to do um, uh, what they call tie-in work media media tie-ins and um, actually of the ones that I did the ones that I thought turned out the best were the were the first ones I did which were tie-ins with the old uh, alienation uh, TV show those were those were the first ones I did and, and yeah. <laughs> 
That was a damn good show. You know? You can see the letters on the buildings. It was right there, you know? Yeah. Western and Santa Monica. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a really good show. I mean, it was. I think it was one of, you know, I was really actually quite happy to do a couple of novelizations based on alienation. And at least one of them was one of the best things I ever did. And then, because I had done those, I got the invitation to do uh, first a couple of Star Trek novels. Uh, the first ones to be done when they were bringing out the the, 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 the new show, uh, Deep Space Nine. And then I also got uh, asked to do uh, a couple of books for the, the Star Wars thing. And you saved Boba Fett. You saved him I for did, us. I did. <laughs> they, they wanted me to save Boba Fett. And um, it, it, it's two different experiences. Paramount has a pretty cozy, friendly attitude towards uh, the, the, the people who write um, Star Trek novels, you know? And um, uh, on the other hand, Lucasfilm, you know, you're, you're, you're lice on the back of a very large dog as far as they're concerned, and you know, uh, it, it's, not, it's not quite as friendly an attitude. But uh, I remember when I, I, I contracted to do the, the Star, uh, Star Trek books, they said, okay, we, 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 they, they, they told me, you know, I was talking to somebody from, from Paramount, and they said, you know, we take these pretty seriously, and we really try to help. As a matter of fact, we've got an entire floor of our building here, which is nothing but people that you call and talk to if you, ha if you need some information about something. If you need to know whether this guy is left-handed or right-handed, they, they will be able to tell you. They know his shoe size. They know, you know what shampoo she uses. Everything. There is no question you can ask that we can't answer. Us. I said, wow. Okay. So I get started to work and all of a sudden I had a question and I called them up. And I said, you can answer any question, right? Yes, that's what we're here for. And I said, great. On the on the on these um, uh, these starships, you know, Federation starships. When does the eagle fly? What do you mean? When's payday? When do people get paid? And they said, by golly, we don't know. <laughs> You broke the helpline. I, 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 I broke. I broke the, uh, the, the the system. They said we. <laughs> nobody has ever asked that question before. I said okay. Well, I'm taking out the shore leave chapter then, <laughs> you know, uh, because uh, if you can't tell me when these poor guys get paid, then you know. And they said so anyway. So that's the difference between you know Paramount and and Lucasfilm, and so there you go. Was uh, how was writing the Blade Runner? I mean, did you basically just get to do whatever? Was there a lot of stipulations? Um. They gave me a pretty free hand. They gave me a pretty free hand. Uh, they, they wanted it to be kind of consistent in tone. I wrote an outline, told them what I was going to do. You kind of have to do that when you, when you do these, uh, the tie-in works. And they, they approved it. The kids approved it. And we went on from there. I, I, I had much more of a free hand with the, with, with, with the Blade Runner stuff. Uh, well, I think, uh, Alexandra, if you don't have any more questions, we can take uh, audience questions. Oh, man, of course. He's so enthusiastic. I, I guess I'm so. Run out of mics. So. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Give that man a mic. Here we go. 
Hey, um, I really appreciate you, you know, filling in and jumping in on somebody else's universe. It's like racing somebody else's race car. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. A, that's a yeoman's task. I there you go. That. But I also appreciate your original work the, by far the most. Now I like you even more. <laughs> there we go, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I like cyberpunk. You know, I think, I think that's a defining modern genre of science fiction that is current and is continuing. And I refer my friends to you as like, oh, you like stuff with real physics, you'll like Hal Clement. If you like cyberpunk that's hard and crunchy and more interesting than plugging in things in your head, check out this guy. He's got AI sniper rifles that are shooting people in Orange County, you know, from the top of a building in LA, which captures the LA Orange County thing really well, by the way. Yeah. Cars go 200 yeah. miles an hour and have countermeasures. I mean, it's crazy. I love Dr. Adder, is how I found your work. Okay. Forward and backwards from that. Love it. But I have an actual question. Oh. <laughs> no, no, keep going, keep going. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> I like this part better than the question. I really like the part that had the ending that got, off, got cut off. Okay. Um, so if we imagine, uh, my wife's theory is that today's world is 1975 with less wood grain and smartphones. Everything's pretty much the same. Concrete, wood, two by four, yeah. stuff's the yeah. same. So I, my theory was, what do you think about, uh, you know, since you've inhabited the Blade Runner world so much, and here we are, it's almost 2019, right? Yeah. What do you think about this theory where the Kardashians are the off-world elite, they get to go anywhere they want, CEOs are getting multiple passports, they've got jets on standby to flee America to New Zealand, I'm sure you've heard of that. Mm -hmm. But then, like, there are the technicians that are useful to them that can't leave. Right, like JW, he's he's useful to them. So he's like the middle upper one, mm -hmm. and the rest of us are just replicants. Oh, that don't need jobs. That don't have any gold watches coming. I'm wondering, is there anybody here who's old enough to remember gold watches? I didn't right. go. So, I mean, what, how would you compare the world as imagined back in those days compared to what we have now? Uh, what we have now is so disappointing. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, uh, I, I, I think the, the, the great songwriter uh, Steve Earle has that song, uh, 20th Century Blues or 21st Century Blues, whatever, where, you know, he's, he's essentially saying, well, a lot of people are saying is that, you know, God damn it, we were promised jetpacks by now, and, you know, uh, instead we get 140 character tweets. <laughs> you know, uh, so, so in that sense, uh, um, you know, we, we, we look at this movie uh, that was you know made back in the the early 80s and at the time that world looked so dystopian and horrific and oh my god I hope that doesn't happen and now we look at it and go oh if only <laughs> life would be so much more interesting yeah LA with rain though, though, though I remember um, after Phil came back from seeing that little 20 minute sequence of of, uh, of uh, the movie that he got to see, he was talking very excitedly about it to me, and he said, "Oh, it, it, it was so futuristic! Uh, uh, all the signs in L.A. were in Oriental characters." And I said, "Phil, I can take you down to Pico Boulevard right now, and, and all the signs are in Chinese. I mean, that's not that futuristic." Um, yeah, the the the. the I had not heard that exact theory, though, uh, but um, 
In some sense, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it kind of goes back to what uh, William Gibson said, that the future is already here. It's just un une unevenly distributed. Uh, some people are leading incredibly fantastic futuristic lives or seemingly futuristic lives, and, and, and the rest of us are, are not. Uh, so, so in that sense, in some ways, I was thinking about this, and it was partly prompted by listening to the Vangelis soundtrack, which you realize now sounds so old-fashioned. <laughs> you know, those wonky uh, analog synthesizers, wang, wang, wang. And, and, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like, you know, watching old home movies. You know, there, there, there's my old dog, Shep, and, uh, you know, playing on the analog synthesizer and, and everything. And it's like, my gosh, why didn't that happen? Why didn't, you know, we get Blade Runner at least? And uh, so, so in that sense, yeah. <laughs> Um, today, you know, okay, yeah, you know, so, 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 so in that sense, yeah, to, to have a big, big screen experience of, of Blade Runner, it's kind of like, oh gosh, you know, if only, you know, it would have been so much more fun. Uh, first, I'd like to say thank you for taking the time to come out to Oklahoma City. I live in Oklahoma City. I love Oklahoma City. I, I had I had no idea. You 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 have to remember that I was raised by Okies. I come from Southern California, but back then in the 50s and 60s, there were so many Okies in Southern California. They should have just renamed uh, Long Beach to like West Tulsa. Uh, you know, because when when the oil fields bottomed out here in Oklahoma, they all picked up and moved to the Long Beach and Signal Hill. So I always knew Okies were good people. I mean, my, my grandmother uh, was uh, born in Oklahoma, and that side of my family was in the land rush and everything like that. And I, I, I wanted to come out here to Oklahoma City, uh, not because I thought it was going to be the swingingest, hippest place I had ever been to, <laughs> but parts of it are. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the film scene here in Oklahoma, I had no idea it was so over-caffeinated. You know, we it, try it, really hard. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's like, you know, what do you, what do you young people want to do? Why don't we want to drink pots of coffee and talk about movies <laughs> and, and make movies. I had no idea. And then the, I started finding out the history, the film, the history of film in, in Oklahoma City, you know, the whole thing down on Sheridan with Film Row and stuff like that. So anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but uh, I, I, I actually live here in Oklahoma City. So, yeah. So, uh, my question is, uh, obviously from the stories you've told this evening in your early writing days that you read a lot and were heavily influenced, did that continue or did you kind of more stick within, you know, internal oh. as you continued your writing career? Wow. That's a tough question. That, that, that is a tough question. I mean, I read so much science fiction when I was a little kid. Uh, my public library, and this was in Norwalk, California, they, 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 they would put little identifying marks on the spines of the books. And I think there was like a little uh, looking glass, which meant that it was a mystery novel. 
and there was a little rocket ship <laughs> if, 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 if it was like a science fiction novel. And, and at first, I didn't even call them science fiction novels. I just called them rocket novels, you know. I said, Mom, I want to go to the library and get more rocket ship novels, you know. And um, so I, I read so much. And, and in a lot of ways, the, the biggest influence um, uh, 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 back then uh, were um, uh, uh, Andre, Andre Norton. Uh, and, and I've talked to other science fiction writers my age, and they go, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it kind of took a while to, to, to be able to come out of the closet and say, yeah, Andre Norton. She was like... The, the big thing, and uh, and of course we didn't we didn't know she was a woman, uh, you know Andre Norton, you know, so we only discovered that later, and uh, just those were like the big influences, and and I just read and reread those books, and then other books, and Phil's books, and things like that, and uh, I think at one point. Um, I, w I was reading the, these books, and I realized there's something funny about these rocket ship books I've been reading, that if you start at the beginning of the book, there's a, a page that has the name of the book, the title of the book, and there's somebody's name underneath. And I go, oh, wow. I bet that's who wrote this. <laughs> I, nobody told me. I had to figure it out for myself that that name, and then I realized, Sometimes the same name is on several books. And some names, those books are better than books with other different names on them. And so bit by bit, I, I, was, kind of, I, was, I was kind of figuring this out. All right. Well, uh, KW, thank you so much for it coming out to Tower with you tonight I, I, and talking with us. Yeah, I round of applause. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for the, um, the, the warm welcome to Oklahoma City. Uh, I, I'm, I'm enjoying my time here a great deal. Well, uh, we're going to wrap up uh, this uh, interview for those of you who uh, are tuning in. If you can, of course, find us at thecinematropolis.com or on uh, Facebook and Twitter, uh, on Twitter at thecinematrop and on Instagram at thecinematrop. Uh, go ahead and give us a like. And we also have a lot of essays. I actually have a Blade Runner uh, essay that I wrote back when 2049 came out in October. So if you're really itching to get more Blade Runner after you watch 2049 here in a minute, uh, head on over there. Uh, KW Jeter, welcome to Oklahoma City. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of TheCinematropolis.com. This has been a Planet Thunder Productions co-production. The Cinematic Schematic score was produced by Vinnie Hogan, and the program was co-hosted and produced by Caleb Masters. This month's soundtrack was hosted by Alexandra Bohannon and Caleb Masters with selections from John Williams' Raiders of the Lost Ark score, Chariots of Fire, Alan Silvestri's Back to the Future, Alan Silvestri's Ready Player One, and Huey Lewis in the News' The Power of Love. Check out the show notes for links to those full songs. Follow all of the updates on the Cinematic Schematic by liking The Cinematropolis on Facebook or by following us on Twitter or Instagram at The Cinematropolis, at The Cinematrop. Make sure to subscribe to The Cinematic Schematic on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any podcast app of your choice. And I hope if you enjoyed the show, you'll go ahead and leave us a review. Stay tuned next week for our full review and analysis of highly anticipated and slightly controversial film Ready Player One. 